Welcome back to another episode of the More Than Punk podcast. I'm Seb McKay and I am absolutely stoked that this week I'm sitting down with the man himself, Frank Turner, to talk about his new album with John Sondergrass. It's called Buddies 2, Still Buddies, and it's a follow-up to their decade-old album, Buddies. Frank and I are talking about everything in this week's episode, from building his home studio to playing the Olympics way back when, to the books that he's been reading. But most importantly, you know, we're talking about giving life advice, what people can learn from his songs or take away from his songs, and just having a good old time. This is the More Than Punk podcast, and this is my interview with Frank Turner. Hello. Hello, how's it going? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Excellent. Pretty the good. system works. We're here at the right time. I know. We, we made it. It must be the first time ever, but it's worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, thanks for coming and hanging out. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to try and make it an interesting interview because I know you okay. do a lot of these. So I do. I've just done a few already today, actually, so I'm excited by the prospect. Excellent. I know, because you, I mean, you've had a big year, not in the, like, touring sense, obviously, because of the whole, like, mega clusterfuck and stuff. But, you know, you've had, like, the split with no effects, buddies, show 2500, all of that shit. How are yeah. you? Uh, I'm okay. I mean, you know, it's funny. All, a lot of the stuff that you were mentioning there, which is all well and good, is kind of silver linings, as it were, yeah. to a large cloud. And I think that it is, it's, I think it's better to focus on the silver linings when thinking about the world. But at the same time, there's a massive fucking cloud in the middle of it. Do you know what I mean? And like, I had a whole bunch of plans for this year, which all got binned off. I had to cancel festivals, tours, recording mm. sessions, blah blah blah, and and that's been really shit. Um, at the same time, I, I, there are many people who've had a rougher year than I have, and I don't want to complain over much you know and I, I i love my wife and i love my cat and i love where i live and and it could be worse and i'm not starving to death just yet so um you know i don't want to complain too hard but yeah it's been a fucked up year yeah we're big fans of your cat in our household by the way I'll just throw <laughs> that out there she, well i'll let you this is an exclusive for this interview um this awesome. morning for the first time she started trying to scale the outside of the house not like climbing up little bits and bobs but just up the fucking side <laughs> of a beam trying to get and it was we were me and my wife were like what are you fucking doing ah but and then she was fine because she's a cat so yeah yeah it's like outdoor cat meets uh, indoor cat rather meets the country and just kind of goes crazy right she's lost her mind yeah um the first time because uh, you're up to speed on my cat's <laughs> existence <laughs> we, we moved out of the city and the first time that we sort of let her out you know there's always that kind of terrified moment and uh she just bounded off over the back wall of the garden, saw on the roof of a shed in the distance and thought to myself, oh, okay, well. See you later. <laughs> See you later. But then she came back um, and uh, she is, uh, she's keeping well. Which is always good news. Cause, and I mean, how's that been for you? Because obviously you're building the studio and stuff and I'm assuming yes. you're, you're doing that in a new place. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Been? Well, it's good. I mean, you know, without getting too bourgeois in this conversation one of the things is that like we've moved out of london which is financially a wise move mm. on lots of levels you know you get more for your money out of the city um it's which is inspired by lockdown i mean my wife and i have always said that one day we live by the sea and then 2020 happened and it was like first of all it was a trial run for what's life like if you can't get to central london easily mm -hmm. and the answer was i actually cared a lot less than i thought i would 
the last three years I've lived my life based around how quickly can I get to Camden Town. And it, when I couldn't, it turns out I didn't mind that much. Um, and, you know, there's more space out here. We've saved money, which is a good thing because obviously income is fucked right now. Um, and, uh, and there's space, there's a, there's space down the garden. There's like a shed that I'm turning into a studio. Um, turns out soundproofing is complicated and expensive. Mm. Um, I've just been discovering this year, but, um, but it's going to get done and then I will have a proper space to record some bands and I'm excited about that. Nice. We, um, I have this like little box room. So I'm in Edinburgh and we have, you know, the flats are weird and they've got these little square rooms and it's, mm. it must be all brick walls and it just echoes like hell. So we just bought a whole bunch of foam panels to try and, and yeah, right. it is complicated and expensive. Like you said. It's, uh, it oh, certainly yeah. is. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, so you're in Edinburgh because you don't yeah. sound like you're from Edinburgh. <laughs> no, I, mo- I moved up from New Zealand just before um, the boring apocalypse started, like literally three right. weeks oh, wow. before. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, if you, I mean, presumably you'd spent time there before. No, no, I hadn't. This oh, right. So this is your sole experience of Edinburgh. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Amazing. Welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We got my, um, I convinced my girlfriend to move up, which was kind of easier than I thought it was going to be, if I'm being honest, um, which is obviously a good thing. And then we sort of moved up here, had three weeks hanging out, went to see you at the Barrowlands in Glasgow. And then that was oh, it. Lovely. They were just like... Don't and then go the world ended. Ever again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Somebody found the off switch for society and went. Like yeah, and you know Crazy. it's been weird, but it's been kind of nice too. There's nothing like exploring an ancient city when there's no one else around. You know what? I spent a couple of days because I obviously I'm I'm still pretty obsessed with London history, and there was a moment in kind of April odd where walking around the city was really quite haunting. Mm-hmm. um and i enjoyed that but um yeah it's i don't know about you like i sort of feel like the, the very beginning of the first lockdown had a kind of this is possibly the wrong time but it had a kind of magic to it there was a bit of that spirit going on it was all unprecedented and it was chaos but it, and it was scary but it was also there was a certain something to it i feel like right now it's just miserable and grim um you know it's uh the second lockdown thing is just you know, it, I've, I was chatting with my friend Ali, who runs Clapham Grand a couple of days ago, and he's really low. And he, he was just sort of saying, if I had to type save the grand ever again, I'm going to shoot myself. Do you know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, it's just everybody's kind of energy and goodwill got expended the first time around. And you did a couple of those shows around, like, I guess, trialing out what venues could look like and, mm. and all of that sort of thing. I mean, that yeah. must have been weird. I saw some of the rules. It was like, don't sing along. Like, yeah. The, yeah. The indoor, that was the indoor shows in particular, the outdoor shows, yeah, yeah. which obviously we had to stop because we live on a small Island in the Northern oceans. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, the, the outdoor shows kind of had more vibe on that level, the, but it was, it was all worth doing. It, it was funny. Like the weirdness of the situation was to a large degree counterbalanced by everybody just being stoked to be at a gig. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It was just so cool to be at a gig and to, whilst not fraternizing outside of your bubble to be in the same room as some other people for once in your life and that kind of thing. So there was, you know, it was, there was a lot of mixed emotions. I do remember the first like quote unquote proper show, which was at the Grand, which was the government pilot one. Jay mm-hmm. Beans on Toast played before me. And as he came off stage, I sort of, you know, he came back to the dressing room and I said, Oh, you know, good show. And he, he turned to me with a kind of like a glow in his eyes. And he was like, you have no fucking idea what's about to happen. And he was just like, the, he was like, cause Jay's a lot less kind of like ideological and romantic about touring than I am. <laughs> right, and, yeah. and he, and he was just like, he, when he went on, he was like, yeah, it's not a gig kind of thing. And he came off just being like, I just can't even tell you how much I missed it and how special it was and blah, blah, blah. And that kind of so, you know, it was, it was a magic moment. Just being um, the sort of ideological and, and romantic about touring, is that like what <laughs> fuels you? I mean, you've done like 
how many, are there countries that you haven't seen? There's probably a better way to fr- phrase that question. Yeah, yeah, there are. I mean, actually, one of the real kickers for this year was that I finally had my first South American tour booked. Yeah, and and that indeed, sucks. it was selling well. There were people who were interested who were coming, and uh, um, and we had to cancel it, and that that was a real blow because I've been trying. South America is quite a difficult place to tour mm-hmm. from here um, because it's quite wild west. The industry out there still the live circuit, um, and uh, for example, a few years ago, I had a tour booked and ready to announce, and then I got a call from a guy called Kent Jamieson who tour manages NoFX. Um, and he said, are you about to confirm a tour with so-and-so? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, don't fucking do that. And he said, he'll fucking steal all your shit and leave you in the middle of the jungle. And I was like, oh, no. oh okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've been something I've been trying to do for a really long time and it was going to happen and now it's not. And hopefully I'll get back out there when I can. But obviously, who fucking knows? Yeah, yeah. Is it still weird for you, like... I mean, South, South America is a, obviously a big place. And you always talk about, you know, like English sort of singer, songwriter, punk. People in South, South America are like, man, we love this guy. We're going to buy tickets to his shows. Does that blow oh, your mind or are you kind blows, of just like, yeah. blows my fucking mind. I cannot yeah. even begin to tell you how much it still blows my mind. Even, like, even fucking Germany, which is a lot closer. Um, you know, I'd never been to Germany before I went there on tour. And I remember the first show I ever did there was in a place called The Underground in Cologne and I was opening for Gaslight Anthem. And I <laughs> sat backstage in the sort of 10 minutes before I went on, really kind of panicking, thinking why the fuck is anyone from Germany going to care about what I have to say? And indeed, are they going to understand it? Um, you know, because because at the time I was dumb enough to not be aware that Germans speak incredible English as a rule, mm-hmm. um, in many cases better than people from England. Um, and, uh, you know, and I went out on stage and literally from the first song, and f- from that first song until today, Germany's been one of the absolute best places for me to play. Like the reception there's just manic for me. And it was... And every single time we're there, I just think to myself, my God, I'm in Germany. I'm in fucking Germany. And, like, and there's people here and there's people with words tattooed on them and there's people wearing T-shirts and there's thousands of people buying tickets. It's, it's mad. It's completely mad to me. And, and I hope that I don't ever lose that sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and again, another sliver of silver lining for this year is it's really kind of like, I cannot tell you how grateful I'm going to be to play anywhere <laughs> once, <laughs> once I'm allowed to do that, you know? I'm going to book you for my back garden. Um, it's, okay. funny, it's funny you said it though, because like, I've been doing this a long time and interviewed like so many different people. And the other, the other night I was talking to, and I always fuck up his last name, um, but Greg Picardo from, you know, Dillinger Escape Plan. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we, so we ended up having this great chat and getting into like life lessons. And he's talking like, like 40 year old Greg is like super philosophical about everything, right? And it was one of those moments where I was just like, holy shit, I'm going to burst into a cloud of dust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Well, I know what you mean, man. Like, I mean, fucking hell. We just did a split with no effects. I know. That's and, like, I, crazy. I, 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 to this day, I mean, obviously, we've been talking about it for about a year before it happened, and we've been working on the music and then the artwork and then, blah, blah, blah. and like, and then me and Mike were doing that dumb shit on Instagram of like fucking with each other and so on and so forth. I mean, the simple fact that I know Fat Mike as a friend is madness to me. And I sometimes wake up in the morning and I have a text for him because he's on San Francisco time and, and I go, and I kind of want to grab my phone and like show my wife. <laughs> and, and she's like, Jesus Christ, would you stop that? Although funnily enough, right? So um, my, my excellent, beautiful, wonderful wife is, is not from a punk world background, let's say. So and she's got into it through being married to me. But like yeah. um, one of the bands that we have in common is Counting Crows, who I adore and she adores as well. And, and I know Adam reasonably well um, these days, which is mad for me, like so insane for me. But 
that's one where she loses her shit when the text message arrives or whatever as well. Do you know what I mean? That's, there's some mutual yeah. ground there. It's like, I've got a fucking text from Adam Jarrett. And she goes, oh my God. And then, and then of course, you kind of do this. And you go, yeah, hi, Adam. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and try yeah. and be really cool about it, yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to be the guy that's like freaking out on the other end of the phone, right? No, no, totally. Um, now, because I mean, buddies, like we have to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, otherwise, yeah. I'm, otherwise, I'm going to feel like I duped you and then Tom's going to hit me up and be like, you know, look, buddy. <laughs> um, I mean, th- that was like 10 years in between, which is cool because yeah. it's sort of the whole revisit thing. Um, love the cat and dog thing, by the way. But when <laughs> you, had you and John sort of been like throwing ideas around back and forth in between or when you were coming to it, it was like, oh man, we haven't written together in ages. This is kind of weird. Uh, well, the whole, the whole story with buddies to go right back to the beginning of it is that Revival Tour 2009 was where I met John mm. and there was a whole shitload of people on that tour. Chuck Reagan, Jim Ward, um, uh, Todd Bean, um, Chad Price, like all these different people were on the tour coming and going and John and I got on well and then we played a show in Little Rock, Arkansas to about eight people. Um, uh, it was not a good night on the tour sales wise. Yeah. But what we did in the end was that we just ditched the stage, set up a bunch of chairs in a circle in the middle of the dance floor, passed a massive, they call them handles in the States, a handle of Jameson. It's just this like fucking four liter <laughs> bottle. Um, passed a handle of Jameson around um, to the, you know, players and the audience all. And we actually had the fucking best time. It was such a good night. So the following day, or possibly a couple of days later, we were in Florida and John and I were hanging out for the show and we ended up writing a song about that gig called Big Rock, Big Rock in Nut Rock and we wrote the song <laughs> in about 10 minutes. And it was fun. And then we decided to, that was the, the kind of, that was the rule of the game, as it were, with me and John writing together was that it has to be done very, very quickly. So the following year in 2010, John lives in Colorado. My sister used to live in Colorado um, and I was at her house. John came over and we wrote an album together in a day. Uh, we wrote nine songs that day and, and it was just like nothing doing beforehand. Go, what do you got? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, in the, in that instance, we then recorded it the following day in a similar way. It was just vocals and guitar, really, that record. Um, and we were drinking whiskey again because I stopped well, drinking whiskey um, yeah. uh, but, um, uh, and you know, and then we recorded it and it's very conversational is a polite way of putting it, that first record. Um, and so, yeah, John texted me in about April and said, do you want to do it again because it's been 10 years? And I said, yeah, fuck, that sounds amazing. Um, so we set up a day-long Skype call. Mm-hmm. We then recorded it over the course of about a month with sending files backwards and forwards and getting actual drums on the record and stuff like that. But, um, you know, so when we went into the writing session this time around, I didn't have anything pre-prepared. Um, John had a couple of bits and bobs that were like half-formed ideas, but literally to the extent that, like, for example, he had he wanted to write a song about the age of a dog. Yeah. Um, and he had this idea about writing a song about Santa Barbara and calling it Espar. And the joke there being that no one in Santa Barbara calls it Espar. Um, and indeed is slightly insulted by the suggestions. <laughs> but we both have a lot of mutual friends in Santa Barbara and have spent a lot of very, very bacchanalian weekends there. So um, it's kind of the whole thing's a bit of a joke on our friends in Santa Barbara. It's like, have you been to Espar? And they're just like, fuck you. That's not what it's called. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, you know, it's, so there were a couple of sort of preformed ideas that came in this time around, but generally speaking, it all just landed in, in one day. And, and it was, it was, I remembered as we went the first time around, we set up the rules of the game. And I remember thinking to myself, how the fuck are we going to write 10 songs in one day? And then we did. And I still had a similar thing this time around, but, you know, even though I'd done it before, I was sitting there thinking to myself, 
is this going to work? Is this, you know, this might be a disaster. What are we going to do? And then we had the first song. First song we did was Stefan Plays the Drums and we wrote that in about half an hour and it was like, oh, this is going to be fine. Yeah, I feel like um, John's story of revamping his house during lockdowns kind of become like infamous. <laughs> and part of me yeah. likes the idea that he just like teamed up with you for buddies too to get out of like what was going on over there. Yeah, I love it. I mean, he, he'd started when I went on the day that we did the writing session. He was telling me, yeah, I'd, I sort of knocked down about half my house, but I don't know how to rebuild it yet, but I'm going to learn off YouTube. <laughs> and I was just like, have you consulted your wife and children about this? That seems fucking demented. But, you know, that's John. Oh, you got to love him though. He's such a great guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I mean, obviously huge back catalog and all that kind of stuff. And you did the um, live in Newcastle record mm. not too long ago where you're like telling stories and things. Yeah. And one thing that I'm real curious about, cause and, and I'm guessing, right. But like your fans sort of grew up with you, right. You've got people from like mm. love iron song sleepers for the week and all that. Mm. Do you feel in a way not to put words in your mouth that you're mm. like, Get kind of giving people or teaching people like life lessons does that make sense like like you can listen to like a frank turner song and be like yeah i'm not gonna do that or like oh, that might turn out well do you, do you kind of get what i mean like uh, i do get what you mean i mean i guess <laughs> that's i'm glad you put it like that um i, I guess like, i would say i'm gonna get myself on the blacklist for that comment aren't i <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah no 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 that's better than saying listen to frank turner song saying yes that's how i should live because jesus christ and i have to say there are moments when people send me messages send me emails like asking for life advice and i'm like why the living fuck are you asking me um uh but uh surely my songs make it apparent that i haven't got a clue what's going on but anyway um i mean i don't know the instinctively i kick back quite hard against the idea of kind of like um any suggestion of kind of like responsibility to your audience or like mouthpiece or yeah. any of that sort of shit because i think that as an artist you have a responsibility to your art and nothing else and like if i want to make a record that is a weirdo drum and bass record or indeed a record about um female historical figures i'm gonna fucking do it and i don't care whether people like that or don't like it and if i did care then i would be a sellout and that's the only time in which that phrase is appropriate to use in my opinion um is when you're making art for anything other than your own best judgment um so on some levels i kick back against that but i mean you know like if they're the flip side of that, of course, is to say that like there are many times when people come to me and say that they've taken things from my songs that have been helpful to them or meaningful or whatever. And it's hard to overstate how humbling and how amazing and how incredible mm. it is for one person ever to say that, let alone to have had a career of people saying that for a while. And, you know, I'm incredibly lucky to have that in my life and I'm incredibly grateful for it. But I guess that that's the thing. There's a weird bit of kind of like there's a sort of dog leg in there somehow. You have to write songs for yourself and then you sort of hope and pray that other people will then give a shit. Because one of the things that means that I still get to make a living. Uh, but I try quite hard to not bring that consideration into the writing process. Um, having said all of that, like the tour that we did, which became Live in Newcastle, was such a blast to do because it was inspired in large part by the Loudon Wainwright special on Netflix which, and I'm going to make a controversial statement here. I watched, Ooh, the, Springsteen I special. I, I watched the Springsteen special and it did very little for me. Um, and I'm an enormous Springsteen fan, but it just felt a bit over-rehearsed somehow mm. to me. And indeed, if you've read his book and read other books about him and ever listened to him play live before, there wasn't much that was new. Um, whereas the Loud and Wainwright special, I don't know if you've seen it, um, and if you haven't, go and watch it immediately, um, was kind of the opposite, same format, but it was so raw and visceral and new and interesting and so on and so forth. So I wanted to kind of go down that road with it a bit more. 
Um, not that it was a Netflix special, but anyway. Um, and, uh, but to make it sort of conversational and narrative as well. Um, and it was nice to be able to look back over quite a large body of work and kind of go, cool. And, and you know, one of the things is, you know, we didn't play Get Better and we didn't play, um, mm. you know, Four Simple Words. And, and it was kind of fun, as much as I love those songs and I'm grateful for the response they've had, it was kind of fun to jettison some of the regulars for a little bit. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and concentrate on a slightly more esoteric surface. Yeah, in that, in that same sort of vein, is it weird that part, I, parts of you might be a bit of a stretch, but you sort of start to belong to the public, right? Like you put those uh-huh. stories out in live in Newcastle and it's, it becomes more than just sort of like listening to a song and trying to figure out if you're singing about like a breakup or taking a shit or drinking whiskey, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, again, this is, it's the same thing really. It's like, there's, there's, it's, it's a slight ambivalence on my part in the sense that like on the, the sort of the, the anarchist and the artist in me is outraged by the idea of belonging to anybody like fuck yeah. off. Do you know what I mean? And also like there is a strange social thing that happens doing what I do for a living, which is that you meet people who feel like they know you, who you've never met and you go, huh? Uh, because it's, it's just odd. It's not a usual social interaction, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and you get used to it over time, obviously, but it, you, there are moments in my life where I've had to kind of slightly remind people that like, we're not actually friends. Like I've never met you before. Do you know what I mean? Um, and like, you don't want to do that in a shitty way. You don't want to kind of put people down in any way, but like there can be some moments where you have to like redefine social boundaries. But so, and again, having said all that, like the fact that there's kind of a community around what I do and whether you're talking about like a regular set of people who come to shows or come to lost evenings or are members of certain Facebook groups or whatever is fucking great. You know, mm. um, it's really, heartening and like my wife is excellent at reminding me how unusual all of that kind of thing is you yeah, know right. she sort of says like she's like i didn't none of the other band, none of the bands that she likes and grows up and listens to have that kind of thing going on and it's kind of there obviously some bands do and i'm not claiming uniqueness in this or whatever but to have a sort of sense of community around what i do is really fucking awesome and i'm very grateful for it i guess in a, in a sense that could be because you sort of grew with it or into it you know like yeah. uh, like i'm thinking like super early shows playing pubs and all that kind of stuff and then it's and it's just been a, a steady climb right yeah i th- i feel like uh, i'm sort of not really the person who's supposed to say this but to a degree i sort of feels like the success i've had has been kind of earned i feel like people think mm-hmm. that and a lot of it you know with no disrespect to anybody at radio or in the press who's helped me out in the past i made my career through playing live you know, yeah, I totally. didn't. Get, I didn't have a breakthrough single on the radio, and I didn't have a magazine cover with the early doors or whatever. No one gave a fuck for years, and I just went and played, and I'd play to five people, and then the next time I played to fifteen people, and the next time I played to fifty people, and it, and and it felt like I'd I was sort of earning the right to be there. Um, and I feel like, like there are people you know who've come along with that, and I do very, I do want those people to feel appreciated by me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and then you played the Olympics, right? I mean, that was a whole mm. thing. The, the Olympics thing was really funny because, like, um, there's been a bit of a thing about my career generally, which is there has there's throughout my career there's been all these moments which were supposed to be the kind of the fucking nuclear blast off moment where things would just go crazy, and yeah. every single time it hasn't done that. It's just kind of gone up a tiny bit more. Um, and like, you know, so like whether it was a big support slot or indeed getting a big radio single, which I have had a few of or whatever, and it's never, it's never been like tripling moments overnight or doubling moments overnight. So it's just been a few more people coming along, which is great. Um, but it's, it's almost kind of hilarious at this point, the number of times that like people from a label or wherever are trying to set up a thing that was going to be this like 
enormously transformative moment and it's always just made things go a little bit better um and so when we got asked to do the olympic thing um what my, my only real reference about it there was obviously some of the kind of holier than now punk crew got a bit annoyed about me doing it the answer to which by the way is that it's really really it's a shit idea to be an old man in 50 years time telling a story in a bar about the time when i could have played the olympics and i didn't that's a shit shit story i'd rather i'd rather tell the story about the time when i did fucking play the olympics to a bunch of 19 year olds who've got no idea who i am and who are trying to catch drinks off me um you know what i mean (laughs) that's a better that's a better image in my mind anyway but my one real reservation about doing it is i genuinely felt at that point because that was after i did the wembley headline show which still felt like a family it still felt intimate in a way that was really amazing and surprising it was like i just played a fucking arena show and it felt like a pub gig which is exactly what I wanted. Um, and then it was like, well, if we did the Olympics, what if then suddenly everything goes kapow? Um, and suddenly all these new people come in and that sense of community that I've really like carefully built up to this point successfully gets shattered by this huge influx of new people. And in the end, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And then the exact same thing happened. There wasn't this huge influx. There was just a, a few new people who came along and got involved. <laughs> and that and, was it. And probably stuck around, right? I mean, like... yeah. When, like when I was going to shows and stuff, you would see the same people. You would have like Frank Turner gig friends, you know, like you'd see the same mm. people at gigs. Maybe that's just because New Zealand was so fucking small that we went to everything we could. But uh, you know? funny, I was going to mention this, by the way, um, and this is actually a, a counter example to everything I've been talking about. New Zealand, God bless New Zealand. I fucking love it. Um, Me too. I, my best, my best childhood friend moved to Auckland a few years ago, and, and now the only time I ever see him is when I play in New Zealand because he's now got shitloads of kids and can't fly home. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, um, for a long time, and I'm sure that you know what I'm talking about. I would play the same couple of places. I play Auckland and Wellington. Uh, play the same gigs and to roughly the same number of people and probably the same people. And that's mm. fucking great. And I'm really happy about that. The last time I was in New Zealand, which was in December 2018, I want to say something like that. Um, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, we had this thing where it turned out Be More Kind charted really quite high in New Zealand and no one fucking told me. Like, I had no <laughs> idea, right? Um, so we arrived in New Zealand after a fucking utterly grueling flight um and as as the fucking usual and i was quite ill as well and then we got there and i was checking my schedule and i noticed that rather than playing like a 300 cap like in wellington i did two shows in a day because the evening one had sold out and i was like huh and then like in in auckland we played like a thousand cap venue mm. and it was I, it was very nearly sold out i think i'm right saying and and it was it, obviously we're talking kind of on a very small level here but suddenly it just felt like things in New Zealand had gone kapow and, and, and I had no idea and I felt it was a very very brief Beatles moment for me it was like oh my god they're like <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool I'm huge I'm big in New Zealand finally um, yeah. but it was it was lovely it was really 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 lovely so it sounds like it's a kind of cool thing though going to different places and slowly winning over those um like ecosystems i guess that's a weird way of phrasing it but you know yeah it is it certainly it feels very um tangible as Mm -hmm. progress do you know what i mean to do the circuit and each time pick up a few more people and i know people in bands who haven't had to do it that way and i have no resentment to them whatsoever because you play the cards that you're dealt and but nevertheless there are some friends i'm not going to name names but there's a friend of mine in very successful bands who didn't build it that way and i slightly wonder what sometimes whether or not they appreciate what it's like to walk out on the main stage at a festival every fucking summer. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. like, that's the thing that it took me a long time to get to. Uh, and 
and like I say, there's no negativity in the statement. It's just, it's just an interesting thing that I think about. Like, um, the other thing is that, you know, a large part of my career, particularly in America, was built on support slots. Mm. And there is something about being the support and that I still absolutely adore because there's, a, there's this really tangible challenge. You walk out in front of however many thousand people it is and nobody knows who you are and no one gives a fuck and they don't care. And you've got 40 minutes to turn that around. And mm-hmm. like, particularly in about 2010, 2011, I did like three or four really long American support tours with my band doing like Social D, Offspring, Flogging Molly uh, and Dropkick Murphys kind of in a row. All, all bands who have a reputation for having a difficult audience if you're a support band. And I remember the social detour in particular. We walk out every night and there wouldn't even be a, like a smattering of applause. It would just be like, who are these cunts? And then, <laughs> and, then, and then by the end of the show, and uh, not every night, and I don't want to blow my own trumpet too hard, but most nights we had the fuckers. Do you know what I mean? We had yeah. them. And, and, that would, and you walk off stage and it just feels like you went from here to here in the last half hour and you fucking did it. And... and and, it's, and, and because I would sell my own merch on those tours as well, I'd get off stage, literally throw on a new T-shirt and just run to the merch table and start slinging CDs and slinging shirts and stuff. And, and it was such a, such a magic time, you know, um, because it just, it just felt every day like something had been achieved. And that's a good feeling. Because there's a, like something extremely unique about being able to play with Foggy Molly and then go on tour with Social Day, right? Like to yeah. sort of sit in that, that area is is pretty different it is and i mean and i'm proud of that and i like to think that it's done in a not too calculated or intentional way i just play the music that i love oh, totally but, yeah um there was a year when we played cambridge folk festival and download and that felt pretty fucking good because i'm not sure anyone's ever done that before um and we didn't play exactly the same set at each, but we played a pretty similar set. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was a tiny bit of tailoring here and there, but like, I'm not sure that I stage dived at Cambridge Folk Festival. That would have been different. Ended in, yeah. Ended in tears. Um, but you know, to have that kind of range is, is, uh, is something I'm proud of. Yeah. Cause I mean, I guess that's the thing, right. And I've been talking to this a lot with um, my podcast guests recently, cause I guess 2020 has been like sort of introspective year for people thinking about how they can do music differently or how their like sound sort of evolves. And I know for a while you were like, Hey, the next album might be an EDM album, but it turned out to be like, um, fucking like, um, you can tell I'm freaking out. Cause I lost the train of thought. Um, might, you know, like might be an EDM album, but it yeah, turned yeah. out to, to not be. When, like, how have you been sort of thinking about your music and stuff over the past little while and, and what's that sort of pro- evolution been like, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel very strongly that it's incredibly important um, to, uh, um, to move forward as an artist, to not stagnate. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah. particularly when you've got a lot of records under your belt, it's like, I, I, I fully understand and almost sympathize with the sentiment of like, wow, the eighth album by Frank Turner, why should I give a shit? Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And like, so it's, but it's on me, therefore, to justify an eighth record, or indeed, as I'm currently doing, a ninth record, um, and to give people a reason to care and to pay attention and to not do something I've done before. Um, and then of course you run into the weird conservatism that inhabits a lot of music fans where they really yeah. want everything to be exactly the same as it was when I first heard it. And I'm, I have no intention of making Love Iron Song again because Love Iron Song still exists and you can still listen to it. And indeed I still play lots of it all the fucking time. Mm. So, you know, um, uh, you know, and so it's, um, 
So I think about this an awful lot, probably more than is healthy, but it's my career, so I should, I suppose. But like, you know, I try and push myself. I try and check. I'm not repeating myself. I try and find new avenues to explore. I've got, I'm, I'm on a very rich writing scene at the moment. I've got like 25 songs ready for another nice. record. Obviously, I'm not going to release a 25 song record because double album is terrible, but um, <laughs> <laughs> Fair for enough. the most part. But um, it means that I can pick the good ones. Um, but yeah, you know, so there's definitely like... Um, I definitely uh, think about this kind of shit all the time and about trying to justify myself as an artist. You know, Um, there are some bands who do the same thing over and over again and can get away with it. And I mean, no disrespect by saying this, but you know, ACDC or whatever and good for them because what they do is so incredibly powerful and unique. But um, uh, I don't, I'm not one of those artists. I want to change. I want to do new things. I want to surprise myself and other people. Mm. are you at a point now when you're writing a song you're like yeah i know this one's going to cut through or like this one's going to be a b-side or a deep cut on an album or nah. is it still no nah? no nah, it's always a surprise and to be honest it's always a surprise when you start touring a record like within the first kind of couple of months of releasing an album you'll know pretty soon which of the songs that are going to last in the set list and which aren't um which is kind of a weird thing because on mm. some levels i don't want to just be a greatest hits artist but at the same time it's yeah. like if there's a song that you could play that's going to, you know is going to get the removing and one that isn't it's just kind of a pretty simple choice most days but yeah it's it's kind of funny i remember when be more kind came out like i was surprised by which songs landed um mm-hmm. and it was like cool well okay that's how that went um and then you move on yeah i it's weird sort of thinking like are you staring down like a greatest hits record? Like, is there going to be like a <laughs> here, you know, here are the 12 songs or 13 songs from the past uh, 20 years. I'm not sure there's masses of point in, in, in this day and age. To be yeah. honest. Do you know what I mean? Like it's kind of uh, Spotify playlists exist for that purpose. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it's funny, like my, I mean, part of what live in Newcastle was about in some ways was me saying like, Hey, so these are some of my favorite songs, you mm. know, and because I'm not now trying to get a mosh pit going, I feel more, like I can take the time to let them breathe and play them. Um, you know, I, I love Get Better. It's a, it's a song I'm very proud of, but at the same time, it was like, I also love um, Re- Isabel and Redemption and songs like that, do you know what I mean? Which get less of an airing. Yeah, yeah. I, as much as I love them, I saw that Papa Roach are releasing the volume two of Greatest Hits album or something, and it's like 20 tracks. And I was like, that's 30 over like six records, guys. Like, are you were just doing a re-release cycle? Like, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that the Greatest Hits record is a difficult thing to, to pull off convincingly. In the history of modern music, there have been a few obvious examples. Mm. Um, but like, you know, a Queen Greatest Hits is, is definitional, should we say. But like, um, a lot of the time, yeah, it does feel a little bit like just repackaging shit to eke out cash. Uh, but as, <laughs> yeah. I, as, as I say, that doesn't really feel necessary these days anyway, uh, or, or justifiable. You just put together a Spotify playlist and you're away. Yeah. Now, just before I let you go, um, I know like you're an avid, an avid reader. And so I'm kind of curious about what's been on your bookshelf lately and what's been getting you sort of like excited uh, and riled up. Well, I mean, I, I read a lot. I've been reading more this year than usual for the obvious reason there's fuck all going on. Um, I'm currently uh, very nearly finished about, uh, the autobiography uh, or memoir, I should say, of George Melly, the mm-hmm. jazz singer, um, about whom I knew precisely nothing at all before reading it. And boy, could he write. So I've been really enjoying that. Uh, what else have I read this year? Um, quite a lot of stuff. I read some Raymond Aron for the first time, which I was pleased to read because he's a fucking genius. Um, I read... Uh, I read an amazing novel called The Essex Serpent, um, uh, and I'm now going to forget the name of the author, but 
it's absolutely check out the Essex effort. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, and I've got a few things coming up. I'm, I'm next. I'm going to read I Claudius, which I've never actually read uh, mm-hmm. much to my shame. So Robert, hey, me neither. So, but I figure I've still got time. Yeah, <laughs> there's always time. Always time. Awesome, man. Hey, thank you so much for hanging out. It's been a real pleasure. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you for your time, man. That was my interview with Frank Turner here on the More Than Punk podcast. A little bit surreal that that one actually happened. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did because we really enjoyed recording it, please give us a like, a share, a follow everywhere that you get your podcasts. A little bit goes a long way. We've got some awesome stuff coming up over the next few weeks, including interviews with Kill or Be Killed, Bad Nerves, and The Winter Passing. So stay tuned for that. We will be back next Saturday here on the More Than Punk podcast. And to lead us out this week, we've got The Fleas, which is off Frank and John's new album, Buddies 2, Still Buddies. Never thought the apocalypse would be boring I was expecting more of a bang, less of a sigh The TV shows implied it would be exciting But I still don't know anyone who's died Here we are, finally on our Waiting for the world to shake us off Like a bad case of the fleas I thought that I would miss other people Other places, other things more than I do Things can be replaced And places can be rearranged And the only one who'll notice it is you Here we are Finally on our knees Waiting for the world to shake us off Like a bad case of the fleas Do you remember what it was like before you were born? Won't be long before you're back there once again To tell the truth, I can't remember much of anything these days It's like they say, and our beginning is our end So here we are, finally on our knees Shaking with each curse and every cough Here we are, finally on our knees Waiting for the world to shake us off Like a bad case of the fleas (laughs) There we go. We could use that. Oh, dude. You see this? I do. I've had this since I was a little kid. uh, It's a kazoo. Yeah. Is this a kazoo album? I've I've been waiting for a bit to see if if we could put this in somewhere. And uh, I mean, I, the thing is, the kazoo is a dangerous instrument because in the wrong hands, it can be used for great evil. Oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay. Well, let's. Um, I mean, do you do you want to try a little bit of kazoo on this one? I would love it. I mean, do you have that one song that I heard you fiddling with? Uh, um... Yeah, I wanted to write a song about how I want to hug right now. I really want to hug. Oh yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> 